This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Equalizer podcast. I'm Pardeep Khatri. I'm hosting this week, and I'm joined by one of our regulars, John Halloran. How are you doing, John? I'm great. How are you? I'm not bad. So this week, we had a big USWNT week. They were back in action this year. Oh, yeah, for the first time this year. They played Columbia in two games. The first one, they won 4-0. Sam Mewis scored a hat trick, and they made it a, a whole family affair when Christy Mewis scored the final goal that day. And then in the second game, a few days later, they won 6-0. Katarina Macario scored her first international goal and also broke the Mewis streak of goals. Um, Rapino uh, scored twice, Lynn Williams scored, Lindsay Horan scored, and to round out the scoring, Midge Purse scored. So, John, what were some of your general impressions from this round of games? I think it was about what we expected. We knew that Columbia was bringing a, a young team in. We knew that uh, Columbia doesn't get together as a national team as often as a lot of other teams. And um, even though the U.S. had had a pretty substantial break. I know they played the Netherlands uh, right before the year changed, but, uh, but even with that, I think everybody expected the U S to handle these games uh, fairly easily. And I think that's what we saw. I think obviously the interesting thing for U S fans besides the debut of of Macario, which I'm sure we're going to talk about is how these games, how this camp uh, is going to push some of the, uh, not only decisions, but conversations, at least among fans, about where the Olympic roster ends up, assuming that we do actually have an Olympic Games. Yeah, you brought up Macario. I also brought her up earlier. She, to me, was probably the biggest headline in terms of new information from this camp. Like you said, there was a lot of stuff that expected that was expected to happen that actually happened the u.s won no surprise the u.s held two clean sheets not a big surprise either sam Mewis is still really good at soccer no surprise (laughs) (laughs) christy Mewis is still enjoying a great streak of four maybe that's not a surprise either but macario was very impressive in her first two games for this national team and i think you know i don't want to overhype young players too much but she seems to so far be doing the work of justifying that hype and that expectation and that excitement. Yeah, I think she looked good. And uh, the other thing is, is I know some of the people who watch her very closely in college will tell you that she really wasn't even at her best for these games. And, uh, you know, part of that's obviously because being, being a collegian, even though I know she's, she's skipping the upcoming spring season, is that she really hasn't played a competitive game since last December, uh, I think. So she's had quite a, a big break from competition. I think the interesting thing for me regarding Macario was the fact that she played both games in the front line. Mm-hmm. And I was expecting her to play in the midfield. She's always been listed as a midfielder on the rosters. And uh, what I think that 
does potentially to some of the battles for the, the forward roster spots is really fascinating. Yeah. And speaking of those forward roster spots, Crystal Dunn and Midge Purse, two people <laughs> who always play in defense for the U S national team. And every single time they play, people are like, why are they playing there? Which is justified. I think it's fair for people to say it. they actually got looks as forwards and what, like the final 20, 30 minutes of the second game. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I think that ties into the Macario point because somebody had, had pointed out on Twitter to me that the only reason Macario, or that, well, the only reason they thought Macario was playing up front was because of the injuries that had happened to the front line with uh, Smith was injured, Pugh was injured. We know that Heath and Press weren't in camp. We know that Morgan had tested positive for, for COVID. So the team was missing five players uh, from their forward pool. So maybe that's why Macario was up top. And I do think that probably contributed to why uh, Midge Purse and Crystal Dunn were up top. I would not expect in any way, shape or form to see either of those players play in any sort of advanced attacking position for the U.S. until at least post-Olympics. Horrible news for many people, but I, I, I kind of agree with you. I think this is kind of a one-off for now. Um, Jane Campbell, I thought it was interesting. She got some, she actually played the full 90 in the second game, didn't she? And that messes around with the goalkeeper rotation a little bit, I thought. Yeah, I totally agree with you because I think if, well, first of all, we don't ever expect goal, goalkeeper rotation with the U.S., right? Like <laughs> yeah. it's, who's ever the starter just gets all the minutes, whether that was back in the days of Hope Solo or when they made the change to, to Alyssa Nair, she just gets all the minutes. So anytime there's a switch, um, it kind of throws you. But you're right. The fact that it was Jane Campbell when I think most of us would have assumed Ashlyn Harris uh, would have gotten those minutes because an Olympic roster only brings two goalkeepers. And so that's it. There is no third spot. So does that mean that Jane Campbell is number two to, to Vlatko Andonovsky right now? Or was that just, Hey, let's throw Jane a game. Uh, but you're right. That's a really interesting decision. And I think uh, surprised more than a few of us. Yeah. And that might be part of a new rotation of players, but a couple of veterans came back to the fold. Carly Lloyd and Megan Rapino played for the first time since the She Believes Cup, the before times. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they were fairly productive themselves. Yeah, I thought they were okay. I, I do think that Rapino showed that any kind of uh, premature calls for the end of her career uh, were just that, that uh, she still has gas in the tank and that she, her skill level has certainly not dropped. And I think that she's going to be right there fighting for one of those spots, but the forward pool is so incredible right now. If you look at that, you're, you're depending on how they decide to kind of move players around, because obviously you do have a couple of players who are, are completely fine playing multiple positions. But like I mentioned with Macario playing in the front line. So you've got Morgan Lloyd, Rapino, Heath press Williams and Macario. That's seven players. And you're probably only bringing five. So to think that two of those players might not be going to the Olympics, especially when one of those players could potentially be somebody like Megan Rapino or Carly Lloyd um, is really one of those things that I think kind of 
shakes people a bit because we're so used to as, as you know, people who watch the U S and seeing that absolute consistency in rosters and lineups and, uh, to think that there might be this generational shift that's only a few months away um, is, is one of those surprising things and probably something we wouldn't have seen if the Olympics had actually taken place in 2020, because I don't think Macario would have come into the fold. I don't think Christy Mewis would have been back in the fold necessarily. I think she really maximized what opportunities she did have on the club level in 2020 to really put herself back in the conversation. So I do think that that has created some potential shifts in the lineup that weren't necessarily there a year ago. Yeah. It, it's not an envy. I, I don't envy Vlatko Andonovsky. <laughs> yeah. It's tough. Cause you know, when you're cutting, if you're cutting and I think you almost are going to have to cut a really experienced veteran. You do wonder how does that, does that shake up the locker room and does that create internal problems? We know that veterans under previous leadership, you know, whether that was Jill Ellis um, or Tom Sermani, that once you start messing around with veterans minutes, that's, that's kind of when the internal insurrection begins. And, uh, you know, I don't think that'll happen to Vlatko. I think he's too new on the job and too well-respected and we're too close to the Olympics, but we know that there was upheaval against Ellis and we are pretty sure that the upheaval against Sermani in that same type of situation is what led to his exit. Yeah, and that's another reason why I don't envy him. <laughs> um, any other players or any other themes that stuck out from this particular uh, set of matches? Um, I, I, it was nice to see Mewis get another goal, Christy Mewis get another goal, because I think that, uh, you know, as much as we're supposed to pretend neutrality in these situations, it's just such a nice story because she was out of the team for so many years and she had kicked around. I don't even know what it was. I think it's like seven teams over a four-year stretch. She hadn't gotten national team call-ups in quite a few years to see her uh, not only excel at the club level and what Houston did this year, but then to, to turn that into a second chance with the national team and then to take advantage of it was, was a really nice thing. And obviously that started last year, so it wasn't just just this camp. And then the other thing that I think has presented some really interesting questions is you know, who are the fifth and sixth defenders? If you're taking five or six defenders, which I think, I think black hole takes six is I don't think anybody can really tell you who number five and number six are on that depth chart right now. I think we know who the first four are. I think we know the starters for sure are going to be Dahl Kemper, Sauerbrunn, O'Hara and Dunn, but who's five, who's six and, and who gets left at home is, is really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing that is also worth mentioning about these uh, two games is that while we, we've now, I think, done a good recap of the stuff that happened during the actual 90 minutes or 180 minutes of play before both matches started, obviously, as is routine at international friendlies, the national anthems of both countries were played. And, you know, obviously, in the eight, nine months since George Floyd's killing, People have been kneeling for the anthem in a support of and show in a show of solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Most of the USWNT players did, but there were a few notable players that didn't. Uh, Carly Lloyd was perhaps uh, the most vocal of the players that chose to stand for the anthem this time, out of just being selected for the post-match press conference. 
And she answered Jonathan Tannewald's question about it like this. We met as a team last night and, you know, I'm really proud of this group. I think the players have really stepped up. They're doing their part. Obviously, I've been kind of away just in my house, tucked away in the woods and recovering from my injury. So I've kind of taken myself out of the soccer environment for a little bit. It was a good mental and physical recharge for me. But obviously, coming back into this team, I think the beauty of this team is that we stand behind each other no matter what. And, you know, players decided to kneel, some decided to stand. And at the end of the day, we have each other's backs. And I think ultimately, we're all here to support one another in any way that we can. And that's what's amazing about this team. She received a lot of criticism for this. I'd argue it was pretty fair criticism. John, I've talked a lot at this point. What do you... Uh, I'll let you enter the conversation now. Sure. Well, I think if we just start with with what Lloyd said, I think a lot of people pointed out the uh, part where she's talking about everybody having everybody's backs. And I think there are probably some members of that team, whether they would say it out loud or not, that don't feel like she has their back. Um, And it's obviously this is something this reckoning has been coming for a long time. And I was lucky enough to be uh, at the Red Stars game um, when Megan Rapinoe first knelt. And the reaction to it then versus how that conversation is taking place now is 180 degrees the other direction. I think Rapinoe was kind of a pariah when she started that process, at least again, in that, this is in the women's soccer realm, because we obviously know that this this started elsewhere. But um I mean, U.S. soccer even had a rule. I think we've probably forgotten about that. Like they literally had a rule that because of Rubino, like you can't do this. Um, And now we saw, I think I'd have to look again, because I know they showed the sideline in the second game. And so I think in the second game, there were four out of the 18 that were available that stood. So, you know, to go from one player to 14 players kind of recognizing that, um, is is important. And I think obviously, as you mentioned, everything that happened this spring and summer and fall, I think has really changed the conversation. And listen, you know, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white man. So um, I think even for me, it forced me to, to take a look and maybe admit some things that maybe I wouldn't have wanted to admit and maybe reconsider who we are as a country and, and where we are as a country. Um, I think it was difficult on Monday, the first game, especially to see it happening because obviously that was Martin Luther King day. Um, We know, I know Rapino spoke out. I believe one other player also spoke out about hoping their teammates would continue to educate themselves about some of the issues that are occurring right right now. Um, I do think that there's a very big gap between where the fan base is in women's soccer and where most women's soccer players come from, the background that they come from, because again, you know, whether you know this or not, and, you know, I'm speaking to our audience, most women's soccer players in the United States come from um, upper class backgrounds just because of the nature of 
how you get recognized by playing on what club teams and the costs associated with that and the travel and the tournaments uh, to get to those upper echelons of American soccer, you can open a lot more doors if you have money. So I think that where the players are in their thought process and maybe where the conversation is happening among the fan base are two different places because people are just coming at this, this from different points of view. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I've talked about this, I think publicly, but definitely privately as well about how watching the, well, like it, like you mentioned, it's great that most of the players that were available kneeled. It still shows that there is still this, I mean, there's an inherent whiteness to women's soccer in this country because of that lack of access that has been a huge talking point in U.S. soccer circles for a while. And obviously this generation of players isn't going to be, even if U.S. soccer has implemented a certain amount of changes, it's not going to be as as evident in this group of players as it would in the future. But even then, you know, it just exposes that that very homogenous group of people that exist in this space. And I think it's particularly revealing when, like you mentioned, the conversation has changed to a point where kneeling isn't even a punishable offense anymore. Um, It doesn't make you, it doesn't put you on the outside looking in. It doesn't make you, it doesn't really, there's really very little punishment for it at this point. So I know a lot of people have said this. Um, Andre Carlisle wrote a really great piece for All for Eleven that if any of you haven't read it yet, you should. But one of the points he makes is that standing while everybody else around you is kneeling does not exist in a vacuum. And I think one more thing I'd like to say is that from a team that has built its name on trying to achieve equality for themselves it i think it's it's a really hard thing to watch then some of them act as if that very basic level of solidarity to achieve a certain uh, to achieve equality for other people that they don't extend that idea that they have for themselves to other groups wider than themselves. I think that's a very disappointing thing to see from the sure, maybe relatively, uh, maybe, you know, percentage wise, small group of players, but they're all, but, uh, but it's an influential group and it's really not that small. It's, I think that's a good point that you make about the team's fight for equality too, because I think for me, I was looking at it as, you know, we also know that there are, there are other groups within the national team that have had to fight for equality on different levels, whether that's members of the LGBT community, um, you know, but the, the team itself, I mean, literally in federal court right now suing for equality. Um, and th- there does seem to be some disconnect between we should have equality as a gender um, versus we should have equality in, in some of these other areas. And uh, you mentioned the, the piece um, that was an all for 11. The one part, and I'm, I'm going to have to paraphrase because I don't have it up in front of me. The part that hit me like a hammer was when he, he said, um, you know, these players are saying, I hear you and your struggles, but I still have to stand for this song. And that was the part where it really made, 
I think to me, um, r- realize that a lot of these players I'm guessing are feeling that some of their other players aren't hearing them, that they're asking for such a small gesture and not getting it. And I have to imagine that it is causing some resentment. And you do wonder if that sort of thing ends up affecting uh, the locker room and not just at the national team level, but also on the club level, because I know that I saw one club player very upset about it online and you know, she, she's teammates with one of the players who was standing. And so how, how does that affect their relationship when we get back to the NWSL environment? Yeah. Yeah. I, I honestly couldn't imagine. I, I know Kaya McCullough who is not with the Washington spirit anymore has talked about how people have asked her to compartmentalize, you know, going through a really emotional time by watching first, you know, violence done to, just not just one black person, George Floyd, but happening pretty regularly, but then watching your teammates or other people in this work environment around you have to be explained or have to be told some things that seem, I don't know, I think at this point should be pretty obvious is a lot. And I I have to imagine it's a massive toll on these players that really they shouldn't have to go through. Yeah, and I think it's compounded by everything else that's gone on in our society, whether that's with COVID or politically. I think there's the there's a there's a mental breaking point, which I think all of us have have probably felt in waves. I know personally, like there's times I feel fine, uh, and then there's other times where you're just you can't you feel like you can't take another minute of it. And again, this is somebody speaking as a middle aged white man. So I think it's, you know, there's definitely going to be some inherent differences there between people who are going through these times who are, who are, you know, parts of of different groups of people as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, Thanks for engaging in that conversation, John. I appreciate that. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Equalizer podcast. want to make sure that you're also aware of the Equalizer's other podcast called Kicking Back, which I host. I'm your host, Jeff Kasouf. Each week, I speak with a player, coach, personality from across the world of women's soccer for insight into their career and some current events. It's a nice, casual conversation, hence we're kicking back. Recent guests have included Vladko Anonofsky, Christy Mewis talking about her comeback to the U.S. national team, Jen Hildreth, the voice of the NWSL, Kelly Simmons from the FAWSL, Vero Bocchette, and recently Heather O'Reilly. Really great conversations on kicking back. So if you like the Equalizer podcast, please go ahead and listen to kicking back. Find us on any podcast platform, including the one you're listening to right now. We have a couple more great shows planned for the end of the year and a lot more planned for 2021. Now let's get back to the Equalizer podcast. Hi, and welcome back to the Equalizer podcast. Before we continue, I'd just like to invite you all to rate and subscribe and review. We like that. So if you could do that, that'd be great. Um, back to conversations about the Olympics. We touched on that briefly. Obviously, right now, the Olympics are still on, although I guess in between recording and posting, that might change. I doubt it, though. Um, so let's pretend the Olympics are still happening, and let's 
play around with some roster spots. John, which players do you think have maybe over this camp and maybe over the last one have really, who their stocks have risen and really cemented themselves as people that could be in the running for one of those uh, spots on a very small roster? Yeah, you know, I don't, um, I'm not sure anybody made a huge case. I don't think there was anything that came out of these games that you were like, wow, okay. Because I do think that Lloyd and Rapino proved that they can still play, which, you know, I don't think was a huge doubt, I suppose, but they had both taken pretty substantive breaks from soccer at both the, the club and the international level. I think Lynn Williams kind of did what we expect Lynn Williams to do, which is very positive in terms of her ability to press, in terms of her ability to kind of create chaos and, and generate um, chances. But I think a lot of us uh, would probably hope that uh, she'd be a little bit more uh, solid in front of goal in terms of finishing, finishing her chances. But you can make that same criticism of Lloyd because Lloyd had a lot of chances. And I think it was, was it the first game where she maybe had six or seven pretty good opportunities and, um, you know, really didn't make the most of them. And so I'm not sure that anybody made a case. I think maybe the battle up front got murkier than it was. You almost, you almost wonder if, you know, Morgan and, and Heath and press by just not being a part of this camp. Um, not that necessarily maybe any of them were in danger of not making the team, but they almost kind of come out the, the winners in that regard. I think um, in the midfield, we talked a little bit in the first segment about Christy Mewis continuing to make a positive impression. And then uh, I think in the back line, and I don't mean this as a cop-out, but I really think that <laughs> Sonic Krieger and Davidson all did themselves a favor in that, you know, Krieger, we saw her get forward. Well, uh, especially, you know, in that second game where she, she started, she provided some pretty good service from that side. I think Sonnet had a couple of good moments and Davidson simply by playing, because I don't think that people realize how bad her injury was at the end of 2019. She was in a boot for a long period of time, she had nerve damage, which affected her availability at the club level in 2020. And so, uh, because I'm, I'm a pretty big uh, believer that she's the future of the national team, but I think the fact that she might be just a tad less versatile than Sonnet and Krieger puts her in a slightly more difficult position, I think maybe to win one of those final six uh, defensive spots. So if I had to press you on who would get those last two spots, you have no, that really you said could go either way. I think that's a fair assessment, but if I had to press you, if based on all we know, let's say you had to decide the Olympic roster today, who gets the last two spots in the defense? I think if I was picking, I'd probably go with Davidson and Krieger. I think right now, Andonovsky is probably thinking Sonnet and Krieger. All right. Um, Macario, I know we've talked a lot about her. We'll talk a little bit more about her. You think she has a reasonable shot to make this roster, or do you think maybe a long shot? How do you assess her odds? I think what you said in the in the opening segment about not getting too excited about young players. I think, and and I I'll, I'll admit I was guilty of this too. I think a, a lot of us probably overhyped Mal Pugh when she came in and, and she was so impressive at such a young age that you thought, 
you know, this, this player is going to just, uh, sky's the limit that she's going to just keep on this upward trajectory. And obviously there are bumps as you become a professional athlete. And I think she experienced some of those. And as somebody who covered the men's team for years and years and years, you can't even make a list. I mean, it's literally dozens and dozens and dozens of players who people thought were going to be the next big thing and didn't. So um, coming at it from that point of view, I think what you were saying about being a bit cautious is important. I do think the one thing that she has going in her favor is that even though we didn't see her play in the midfield, I think most people would say that she's equally comfortable in both the midfield and the forward line. And I know people like to point out that Heath and Rapino and Lloyd have all played in the midfield, but none of those players have played in the midfield with any sort of consistency in recent years. I mean, Lloyd hasn't really even been a midfielder since 2016. Yeah. So we're now looking at five years where she's basically played as a forward and Heath and Rapino haven't played in the midfield on the club level in, in quite a long time. And I can't even remember the last time we saw them play in the midfield at the national team level, but Macario probably is slightly more versatile. And I think Macario could be used. You could slide her in as either a sixth forward or the fifth midfielder. But I think if you do that, you probably push Christy Mewis off the roster, which is again, people like don't like to think about those decisions and they don't, I don't think they really realize how small an 18 player roster is. You got to make, there are some tough, tough cuts coming up because um, you're probably looking at Lloyd and Williams, Lloyd and Rapino, Williams and Rapino, Williams and Lloyd, or some combination of one of those plus Mewis aren't going to make this team. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like even on a 23 person roster, you would still have to make some pretty tough cuts. And now you're what that's five less players. So one more question I have, and this is really just me asking, uh, do you think that the veterans or the veteran players have better odds at this point of making the roster, at least in the forward department? Cause I have a feeling they do, but I also don't try to expect surprising and fun things <laughs> yeah no I think that's fair because I, I again I think for anybody who's followed this team for a long period of time you just become used to seeing that same lineup right the same roster come out and part of that's due to the nature of the contracts and part of that's due to kind of the, the veteran mentality of the squad and you know certainly we know that call-ups to this team are not based on club form uh, pretty definitively. We have some players who consistently get call-ups who rarely even play for their clubs. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a fair question. Um, I, I do wonder a little bit if maybe locker room dynamics are going to maybe make a factor in that last decision or two, because you've got to bring 18 players. These players are going to have to be pretty tight and you can't have one person pulling in a different direction. For sure. And it's not like they're, they're, uh, Andonovsky doesn't have a lot of really talented players to choose from. Sometimes you got to pick on all the other stuff too. Yeah. One last question. This isn't about the team and you don't have to show your work because you're not an epidemiologist and you're not a member of the Japanese government assessing whether these games go on. Do you think the Olympics will happen? I'm going to say yes, just because I don't think I can deal with the thought of them not happening at this point. I don't know about you or any of our listeners, but 
we went into this thinking that this was going to be hanging out in our house for a couple of weeks and flattening the curve and then life back to normal. And then it became a month and then it became, well, the summer will come along and then we'll get to do fun stuff again. And then it became, well, maybe by the end of the year, there'll be a vaccine. And, you know, now we're at the end of January and now we're hitting all of these bumps with, you know, the, the rollout of the vaccine and how, how fast that's happening. But I do have hope because, the Olympics are at the end of July. So I do think that we can get to a point where we, we start to vaccinate enough people to kind of uh, create this, this herd immunity that you need to break the chains of contagion. And uh, I, I have to hold out hope because it's, it's been a long 10 months. Uh, I know for me personally, and I know that my family is much more contained than most, but um We've we've stayed pretty isolated for 10 months and there have been some challenging times with that. Uh, I know certainly from the, the mental side of it. And uh, I think that NWSL proved that you can make it work if you're careful and, and you follow certain protocols. And the, the U.S. national team now has been in for two camps and three games. I suppose the uh, the four Colombian players that were excluded from the first game aside. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I am hopeful that the they will take place. I am less optimistic than you, but I don't even want to crush your spirits. And I don't want to crush <laughs> anybody. I, I really can't. I can't get myself to do it right now. Maybe in the next, maybe if we did this like an hour later, I would be more negative. But right now I do not want to crush anyone's spirits. So I'm going to be hopeful like you, at least for now. <laughs> so that is about it, I think, on our uh, international coverage uh for today's pod but there were a couple of small developments in the nwsl so the first thing that i would like to bring up is that this summer the international women's cup is going to exist um louisville and the chicago red stars will take uh, will participate along with two unnamed teams from uh europe i believe most likely and i think unnamed because they haven't settled on those yet and this should be a direct competitor to the International Champions Cups tournament, which they haven't announced yet if that will happen this year. But maybe that will, too. How are you feeling about it, John? Well, I think this is set up for August. So it goes hand in hand with your question about the Olympics, right? Oh, because... yeah, it sure does. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> you know, if uh, if it takes place, uh, it might be a, a fun opportunity, I know, for some of us in Chicago to actually go down and, and see all of this firsthand because I think they're holding the whole tournament down down in Louisville. So uh, could be could be a fun road trip. Yeah, I bet. And I know I actually did a story about this during the Challenge Cup about how players and coaches would were hoping for more cup competitions and things like this because they're up until last year, they weren't really part of the American women's soccer schedule at all. So, you know, it's a cool development and who doesn't like to continue that debate of are American clubs just as good as European clubs. It's fun to add to that conversation. Um, other things that happened in the NWSL, a couple of people joined, um, North Carolina Courage signed Diane Caldwell and Elizabeth Addo and Orlando signed Phoebe McLernan, uh, you know, not a huge week for signings, but those are a couple of players, you know, these teams are adding to their depth. 
Yeah, I don't have anything to add on that, but I know we're going to mention the the one retiree, and, and yeah. that one's a little bit sad. Yeah, Britt Eckerstrom, after really making a name for herself in the Challenge Cup with the Thorns, has announced her retirement. I mean, at least she had this wonderful moment where everybody in the women's soccer community celebrated her, right? Yeah, it, I think the the tough part is is that I think if you looked at, and we know that that Portland has three starting level keepers. So obviously somebody was going to get pushed out there, but there, there, it seems like there would have been opportunities at other clubs for her to, to not only catch on, but potentially even challenge for a starting spot in a couple of places. And uh, it's just kind of sad that we're not going to get to see that happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, at least we did get to enjoy. She did deliver one of the most thrilling performances of the Challenge Cup in that in that quarterfinal game, especially against the North Carolina Courage, where, I mean, everybody I think expected the Courage to win, they didn't, and that was yeah. because of her. Yep. Yeah, I think we're gonna remember that for a long time in a very in a very memorable year. That was a very memorable moment. Yeah. Anything else to add, John? No, this was fun. Yep, I had a good time too. And like and you're making me feel optimistic about the Olympics. That's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us. We hope you enjoy this as much as we did, and we hope you stay safe. Have a good one. <laughs>